While you turn to page 1101, can I say that uh, Dave Todd has signally failed to excite me about skateboarding. I have resolutely refused. All I promise to do is to watch him when he does it, because he does it at the back of our flats. So if you want to watch him do it, we'll come in our flat and you can, you can watch him in action. Marvellous. You'll have noticed, if you're very, uh, you're very observant, that little series of sermons in the evening depend upon the preacher having a biblical name. And it's quite clear that for the future, anybody applying for a job on the staff of Christchurch Fullwood will have to make sure he's got the kind of name that fits. If you know Melchizedek, invite him to come. It's a marvellous <laughs> Well, I bear that. I mean, you probably do know. If you don't know, you will know. The name Philip, good Greek word, means lover of horses. Why my parents gave me the name Lover of Horses, I shall never know. It has shown signal failure on their part. But Margaret, my wife, will tell you that if we are walking across a field where there are horses, they always do dash for me. Uh, they pass Margaret by without a slight uh, interest, and to me they come. And she says to them, well, he may be called Philip, but he, has, he doesn't live up to his name. And I've never been a lover of horses. But I am delighted that I have two Philips in the Bible. You do know there are two Philips in the Bible. There's the one who comes in John, who was a disciple of Jesus. He doesn't do terribly well. Uh, he's always a bit sort of timid. Uh, whether I'm, I don't think I follow him either, but he, he was a bit timid. And uh, when he had a friend who wanted to see Jesus, some Greeks, they came first to Philip, because Philip was a Greek name. He, they probably knew him. They trusted his name. But he hadn't got the strength or the audacity to take them to Jesus. So he finds his friend Andrew, and Andrew was much better at it. And together they took them to Jesus. And there comes an awful moment. I never read the words without sort of wincing. When Jesus says to Philip in John 14, uh, Have I been so long time with you, and yet have you not known me, Philip? Whenever I hear those words, I think, Ah, well, Lord, yes, I, I do know you. What is even more wonderful, you know me. And that is the greatest thing. But the Philip we're looking at is the other one. He is Philip the Evangelist, and we've got the story on page 1101 that's been read to us, this very dramatic story, which in a sense is only half a story. So we're going to spend a little time preparing. For those who look at their watches, my preparatory time will take as long as the actual sermon will take. And it won't be any longer than usual, so just rest content, uh, will you please? But uh, Because I want to see Philip the Evangelist in this context. This particular Philip was uh, with Stephen. You had Stephen this morning, if you were this morning in church. You had the story of Stephen. And Stephen and Philip were sort of uh, both called to be deacons, called to serve tables, called to be practical. I'm intrigued, just if I may, in passing. I've noticed a, a, a recent tradition which I kind of deplore, really. People say, I belong to the 6.30 service. Other people say, I belong to the 9.15 service. Or, I belong to the 11. And then the very elite group, I belong to the 8 o'clock communion service, they are an elite group. As though we sort of were different groups, we're all one family. And if you could bear to spread from one to the other, the mornings and evenings are rather overlapping at the moment. For example, next Sunday morning I'm back again, and the story of Cornelius links on irrevocably with what I'm preaching about tonight. And if you were here this morning, it was because of Stephen that Philip started a greater ministry. What happened because of Stephen at the beginning of chapter 8? Well, he died, he was, he was, he was uh, martyred, and in verse 2, godly men buried Stephen, and Saul began to destroy the church. And verse 4, those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And on went Philip in his ministry. He was thrown out, and being thrown out, he was scattered, and he began to proclaim the Christ there in verse 5. So the story of 
Philip depended on the martyrdom of Stephen. And even more than that, though, I mustn't transgress too, at the beginning of chapter 8, there was Saul giving approval to the death of Stephen because Stephen was martyred. Saul's, Saul's soul began to be in torment until he gave in to Jesus. And in the mercy and providence of God, Stephen died and out of his death came life. That is happening today in the world. Christians are dying for their faith. That's not just a story of the past. And out of their death could come real life. Well, it did then, and it can do it again. And so Philip starts his ministry. What is intriguing is, where do you last find Philip? Well, you last find Philip in Acts 21. Uh, and in Acts 21, verse 8 and 9, Philip is in Caesarea, and it's there that he's called Philip the Evangelist. And it's 25 years later, and he's still at it, and he's there with four daughters who all prophesied. I once got into trouble. I made a joke about having four daughters who all preached, and I was told I was sexist. But there you are. I think it's marvellous to have four daughters who all preach. I may have some problems, I suspect, about four daughters who all preach, but uh, Philip had all these preaching daughters. And the evangelist was not just a man who did a one-off great occasion. He was a man who was consistent and faithful and 25 years later, he was still at it. And one of the great threads of this story is I've been thinking through what I should say about my namesake and the gospel according to Philip is that it's not just the special, high points that make a man an evangelist. It's a continuing, day-by-day, passion for evangelism. You see, as far as we know, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and the story of Samaria stands out like a great pinnacle. What happened over the, all the other 25 years? We don't know. Even here in, in this passage in chapter 8, in verse 40, he goes about at Azotus, wherever that is, and travelled about preaching the gospel wherever he went. He just went on. No high watermarks, no more Ethiopian eunuchs. You see, you only occasionally, only occasionally, have the great high watermark. What God expects of us is faithfulness in the ordinary. And that was Philip. The word evangelist only comes three times in the New Testament. This is one of them, Philip the evangelist. It comes in Ephesians where God gives to some people the gift of being an evangelist. He calls some to be evangelists. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And over coffee afterwards or when you go home you might like to discuss, is every Christian called to be an evangelist? Some would say no. Of course we're not all called to be a Billy Graham, that kind of evangelist. But I would argue that every one of us is called to share the good news, as we shall see in this story this evening. But please to set it in context, this remarkable bit on that Jerusalem to Gaza road was the second half of chapter 8. The beginning of chapter 8 was a story of Philip going up in verse 5, proclaiming the Christ. You see, where was this? Samaria. Who'd been to Samaria to prepare the way for Philip's ministry? Our Lord himself. John chapter 4. A woman at the well, gloriously changed, went telling her friends, this man told me everything I ever did, so the ground had been prepared. And Samaria? Enemy territory. People would go miles out of their way to avoid going through Samaria if you were a Jew. 
Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And this was the great beginning of the gospel reaching out. Hence our next Sunday morning, Cornelius continues that great story. Breaking down one of the great barriers of their world. And when Philip preached the Christ, please note, Messiah, for they were half Jewish. They were awaiting a Messiah. That's what the prostitute woman argued with Jesus about. And he preached the Christ and there were miracles And that lovely bit in verse 8, there was great joy in that city. Wander around the city of Sheffield any time of day or night, you won't find people going around looking very happy. The only noise of joy you'll find is the inebriated lot. Ordinary people don't show much joy. Or go on a tube in London and try to talk to somebody. That's that's a great moment. It causes great concern. You actually somebody opens their mouth and speaks on the tube in London. Joy is not actually the characteristic, but in Samaria there was, because the gospel got there. And when the gospel got there, there were two intriguing things happened. You're going to go home tonight and read the beginning of chapter eight to get it all in context. One intriguing thing was that a man called Simon who was a magician who did occult things, and there's a lot of this kind of religion around nowadays, you can multiply the Simons of today who do extraordinary signs and wonders. And then he saw that actually when Peter and John came and laid hands on these people, they not only believed, but something unusual happened. Probably uh, they spoke in tongues. They knew that they had something unusual happened. And Simon said, Can I please do that? How much does it cost? He wanted to buy. Now, there is a a sin, a crime, do you know, called the crime of simony. You're learning a lot tonight. Forty years ago, almost exactly, I stood in that vestry down there. The only bit of the church hasn't changed. It's as bad as it ever was. I was in that vestry 40 years ago, and I stood before the bishop and the archdeacon, and various legal dignitaries, and I promised with my hand on the Bible, I seem to remember, that I had not bought this benefice with any money, that I had not procured the title of Vicar of Christchurch forward by any financial means, and I was uh, not guilty of the sin of simony. I think we've got rid of that nowadays, but that was what you had to do. For simony was trying to buy things of God, With money? Has it died? Not quite. I think a lot of people imagine that's how you get things. That's how you can procure the things of God. You you earn it. It's not all of grace as we've been singing about tonight. Well, it was a great story. But move on. With all that happening, all that remarkable thing happening, suddenly in verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south. Now, it was a remarkable thing. And we're going to read a story which actually is a challenge to what we call in theology, hermeneutic. That is, how do you make a story like that relate to a world of today? I will guarantee, with an, with an iron cast guarantee, that not one single person listening to this sermon in church tonight, or on that strange thing, I have no idea what it is called, MP3, if you, wherever you hear my sermon, I will guarantee that not one person will ever meet a man in a chariot on a a road from Jerusalem to Gaza reading a scroll of Isaiah 53. I can guarantee it without any hesitation. So where will I find the relevance? And I want to say in all honesty as a clergyman, 
How many times have I actually met a man on a train or a bus with a Bible in his hand saying, please, can you explain this to me? Yes, a few times. A handful, two handfuls, possibly. And therefore, I want to say, what God did through this man then was in one sense unique, but in one sense it it's, could be multiplied tonight. I don't know many hundred people are here tonight. Hundreds of times. If we have the passion that Philip the evangelist had. He was willing to leave a great going concern in a city, leave them to it, and go off on a journey that took him ages to get to it for one man, just one man. And that one-to-one was desperately important. Sometimes the most important events don't happen in the big do's, the Billy Graham do's, which I love and support fully. But they happen in the one-to-one, the conversation, by the way. And as a result of it, it's intriguing. We don't know all the geography, but it may just have been that this was the beginning of the church in Ethiopia, the modern Ethiopia, which has, of course, a long historic church. It desperately needs reformation, but the church goes back a long way. You may remember some of you, Haile Selassie, who was the emperor of Ethiopia once upon a time. The Rastafarians all claimed their ancestry from Haile Selassie. Just about of interest, I played table tennis at Oxford with Zodi Selassie, Haile Selassie's nephew. He was very good at table tennis. He never did any work. He didn't need to, being Haile Selassie's uh, nephew. But there was a church in Ethiopia, been a church for a long time. It's just possible, though we can't prove it. That what happened to one man on a dusty road started a church, a new church. And certainly what is true is that when you and I get the vision, there can be all sorts of new church plants going on when people hear and respond to the truth. Acts we're looking at in the morning and Acts 1.8 is now beginning to be fulfilled. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Now my three points. This is where the evangelist can be at work. Three things are always true. In the will of the Lord, with the word of the Lord, at the work of the Lord. There you are. Easy to remember. In the will of the Lord, with the word of the Lord, at the work of the Lord. In the will of the Lord. Isn't it intriguing? The angel of the Lord suddenly appears. Was it an angelic person from heaven? Was it a human being sent by God? Because the word angel simply means messenger. I don't know. I do know that already three times in Acts, an angel of the Lord has appeared. Twice to release people from prison. Once, Acts 12.23. That's yet to come, sorry. Acts 12.23. In Acts 12.23, he strikes Herod with an incurable disease and he's eaten by worms and he died. Now, what is intriguing to me, I sometimes meet people still who say to me, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could see all the miracles of the Acts of the Apostles happening today? And I say, do you think so? I said, Ananias and Sapphira? Dropping dead? No, 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 not that. Herod dying because of his arrogance? Not that. Don't be choosy. When God works, he works by delivering and he works in judgment. And they're both proofs of God at work. If you limit God's work to works of deliverance, then you're actually missing half the point. Oh, there are many nice Christians who don't want to believe in a God as a God of judgment. If that's you, you better find a new Bible. 
For God works in both ways. And mercifully, his sovereign work is a work of grace. And so the angel of the Lord, whoever he was, guides uh, Philip. But will you notice in verse 29 and verse 39, the one who guides Philip is no more an angel now, it's the Spirit of the Lord. I don't fully understand. But I do know what is being said. Here is a divine prompting. The angel comes to say, go south. The Spirit drives Philip towards the chariot and the Spirit will eventually take him away. He was, God was at work. Two things were happening. The servant was prepared and the convert was prepared. Two things. You'll see in Acts 8, 9 and 10, it's always the same. We'll see it next week with Cornelius. Peter had to be prepared. Cornelius has been prepared. Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus has been prepared. Ananias has been prepared. In Acts chapter 8, Ethiopian unit being prepared. Philip being prepared. He's working at both ends. Do you realize God's working in the hearts of non-Christians if only you let him work in your heart to reach them? And this is what's happening here. How did he prepare the servant? Well, Philip seemed to walk so close with God that he knew the Spirit's guidance. And he was ready, even in verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Have you got a vivid imagination? I don't know how fast chariots ran, but it went. But there's Philip sort of puffing along. It's like some of these joggers I see every now and again passing our house. Our house in Sefton Road is a famous place for dog walkers and joggers. Uh, when they come jogging, I normally walk near them because I think they might need my ministrations any time, the last rites. I'm ready to give the last rites at any moment. Uh, well, if, if Philip was jogging alongside the, the, the chariot, he waits there until uh, the Ethiopian eunuch invites him on board. But he was being prepared, ready to meet the one. Now, can I push you a bit further on this warm night? Do you remember a story of Jesus when he was asked a great question by a lawyer who loved to ask questions that nobody can answer? And the lawyer asked the question, who is my neighbor? And how did Jesus answer his question? He told him a story of the Good Samaritan. And at the end of the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus changes the question very subtly around. Not who is my neighbour, but to whom can I become a neighbour? Which is a vastly different thing. It's not, is it my next door neighbour, my family, people around me? No, it's a person who tomorrow I may happen to meet on a walk, at work, on holiday, whom I never thought I would meet and whom I never meet again. To who can I become a neighbor? The good Samaritan met a, a dying Jewish man who might have been unhappy for a Samaritan to minister to him, but he became his neighbor. Well, it's a challenge. The, ser the servant was prepared. And the convert prepared? Or the would-be convert? It is very interesting, isn't it? Where did he come from, this man? Look at verse 27. The Ethiopian eunuch, he was in charge of all the treasury, he was a chancellor of the exchequer, and he belonged to Ethiopia. And in Ethiopia, what did they worship in Ethiopia? They worshipped the king. And the king of the Ethiopians was a god. And Candace, the king's mother, did all the work. For a god doesn't have to work, so you worship the god, king. And this man was intelligent, he knew full well the king wasn't a god, and he was looking for some reality. So he'd been to Jerusalem, it says. 
And he'd gone there to worship. He'd heard about the monotheism, the one true God. A people with, 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 with a, a book, with books and with a commandment. And he was attracted. And he went to Jerusalem and he was coming back disappointed. Why? Well, if you know in Old Testament, he couldn't become a Jew. A eunuch was not allowed to become a Jew. He could never become one of the people of God. He would never be able to worship in the synagogue of God and he was coming back, having heard some great truths, but still dissatisfied. Incidentally, very different, but similar. How many people, I wonder, at moments of need and grief, wander into a church, maybe this one, hoping for something? Maybe because we don't preach what we should or we don't live as we should, they go away dissatisfied. Desperately going for something somewhere. How sad to have been to the one place they might have found. Anyway, he was coming away from Jerusalem, but he had one thing with him. He had a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And here he was reading Isaiah 53. What a great starter. Oh, I'd love before I pass away from this earth to meet somebody who says, I'm reading Isaiah 53. Could you explain it to me? Two hours later, they'd be disappointed. I'd be still at it. It'd take a long time. But what a wonderful opportunity. In the will of the Lord, he was prepared. He was prepared. Do you believe that? Do you come to translate it to you? Tell you When I was a lad, we used to sing a chorus, lead me to some soul today, teach me, Lord, just how to pray, and so on. Well, it's a simple sort of prayer, but maybe I ought to pray it more often than modern Philip. In the will of the Lord. Secondly, with the word of the Lord. You see... Here was evangelism, explaining Scripture and driving home the truth of Scripture. There was the word to communicate and the way to communicate. The word, well, was Isaiah 53. What wonderful passage. All about the suffering servant, all about the lamb led to the slaughter, all about the one who was taking our sins upon him. Tremendous stuff. Jesus would quote it. Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Peter would quote it in his letter in full. It's, what a passage. But please note what is most important to me is that how you evangelize is that you actually get the word of God across to people at the very heart of your evangelism. What do I mean? Well, some of you have heard me say this before. There's a, there's a modern phrase which says, The church fails because the church doesn't scratch where people are itching. Have you heard that sort of awful phrase? And I always want to say, it's not my job to scratch where people are itching. It's my job to make people itch where they ought to itch, and then I'll scratch. You work that one out if you can. (laughs) For you see, what are people itching for? And they come to church because they want company. Well, that's fine. We can do that. That's all you want. They're coming for experiences. They're coming for happiness. I can't always promise people you become a Christian, your marriage will be wonderful, you'll get a good job, you'll be rich. Of course I can't. You'll never be ill. Of course I can't. What I can promise them is that there is forgiveness of sins because Jesus died and with forgiveness of sins a hope of eternal life. About that I have no doubt whatever. He may give you happiness as well. He may give you wealth, he may give you a good job but I know he will give you forgiveness because he promised it completely. That is the word of God must be there and therefore people ought to be itching to hear what God has got to say longing for that which he alone can give. 
and always in Scripture, at great moments, the words in the centre. I'm doing my reading through the Bible in a year, which I do alternate years in my quiet time, and I've reached the bit now where Josiah discovers the word in the temple again. It's a great chapter. Suddenly, having lost the word, they discover the word and a reformation begins. And I was praying after, please, Lord, do it again. How I long for the word to be rediscovered in the churches of our land and we can expect another Josiah's reformation, God willing. So it's the word to communicate. The way to communicate it? Well, this Philip prefers pulpits to chariots. I'm much happier in a pulpit than I would be on a chariot. And I'm much happier standing in front of several hundred people than just in one-to-one evangelism. I think I'm better at that. But I know how important it is that I, one-to-one, should be able to preach with as great enthusiasm, but in the right way for the chariot experience. And so the way uh, Philip does it, he's always ready, please note that fact, always ready to obey. Verse 26, when the angel said, go, verse 27, he went out. Here in verse 29, stay near, so Philip ran up to the chariot. And when he was invited up, he went. And he asked the question, do you understand what you're reading? Uh, Please remember, everybody in those days read aloud. Silent reading was an unheard of thing. Everybody read aloud. So if you read, you read aloud. And he will be reading it aloud. What a rude question. Do you understand what you're reading? I sometimes think, that Christians are so determined not to upset anybody that they never convert anybody. We're so busy not being... We're all very nice, you see. We must be nice. It wasn't a very nice thing to do, say, if you understand what you're reading. It was a bit straight, a bit to the point. How can I? And uh, verse 34 is a great examination question. I remember doing it in my general ordination exam. Tell me, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Discuss. Question number two, discuss. Well, of course, having studied theology, I knew what to discuss. I could tell him, he might have been, Isaiah might have been talking about the nation of Israel which suffered. Might have been talking about himself who suffered. But supremely, because I wanted to get my message across even in exams, he was talking about Jesus. And I quoted the bit in Isaiah 53, where it talked about him being with the rich in his death. How do you understand that? apart from Jesus, who was extraordinarily, unexpectedly, in a rich man's tomb. And so, Philip had no doubt here. Philip began from that very passage, and see what he did, verse 35, told him the good news about Jesus. You know, I've been challenged just preparing this sermon. I really have. Do I do that often enough? And it struck me particularly, if I may push this across to you, I often use this story as one of a trilogy. There are three stories in the Bible of very successful men who were in desperate need. Naaman, the leper in the Old Testament, general, successful, won victories, but he had leprosy. And he was brought very low by the prophet, had to go and dip in Jordan. Zacchaeus, very, very wealthy. And yet he climbed a tree and Jesus had to say to him, come down, I want, I want to come to your house today. He brought him low. Zacchaeus wanted to meet him quietly in a private place away, but Jesus brought him down in front of the crowd. And the Ethiopian chancellor, a man of great distinction. Now the challenge that's come to me is, 
<laughs> and it's coming in an odd kind of way. Let me explain. I don't know where you follow all the news, but uh, I have to tell you, if you haven't followed the news, that Michael Vaughan has, re- has resigned the England captaincy. And that troubles me. Michael Vaughan has resigned the England captaincy. I felt quite thrown by that solemn fact. And if in case you didn't know, he stood here and got married here some years ago, didn't Michael Vaughan? So I kind of feel about this. Not surprised. Now, what's that got to do with all this? This is what it has to do with all this. If I were to meet Michael Vaughan, and I have met him, if I were to meet Michael Vaughan, would I spend the time talking about English cricket? Would I spend the time, because he's an important person and I like cricket, we're rather nice, I can tell people I chatted with England captain? Or would I have the courage to say to Michael Vaughan, in a sensitive way, you're going through a tough time now. You need Jesus. He can meet your need. He can deal with your deepest problems. Now, what is the answer? What would I do? Well, I'd have to battle. I know what I ought to do. But how easy it is we're respecters of persons. Somebody important. And I may have the chance to meet them. Dare I speak to them about Jesus? You see, sometimes the important people, the people of position are desperately lonely Gordon Brown, whatever your politics, a man must be desperately lonely. Would I dare to talk to him, not about politics and the way he can get out of it? Or to say to him, do you remember the faith you once learned at your father's knees? How about coming back to Christ? Well, this is the challenge, no? It's unlikely I should meet either of those two people. But I hope if I did, I would have the grace and the courage to communicate Christ. You see, sensitivity, yes. Courage, certainly. And if you didn't know about Michael Vaughan, please don't sort of turn off the rest of our sermon in your deep concern for the future of English cricket. We will survive. All will be well. In the will of the Lord, with the word of the Lord, and finally, at the work of the Lord. Leading to Christ, living for Christ. You see what happens. He taught the good news about Jesus, verse 35. We don't know how much he taught him, but they travelled along the road. He told him enough for this man to know, I need to be baptised. Verse 37 may not be in the original. It's probably in the bottom of your Bible. Uh, If you believe with all your heart, you may. I believe he's the Son of God. Well, whether or not that's in the original, that's the sort of thing that would have happened. And clearly the man had come to faith and he was baptised because he'd been led from just one passage of Scripture to the reality of Christ and its relevance to his life. I have no doubt Philip talked about sin, repentance, which is baptism all about as he brought Christ and this man together. And of course it was a great breaking down of a barrier. Here was a very much a Gentile coming to faith. Here was the opening of something remarkably new. What a revolution. And then finally living for Christ. You can't preach from the silence of Scripture. We don't know what happened to this man. All we know, at the end of verse 39, he went on his way rejoicing. It's nice when you can care for young converts. They do need mentoring. But I think sometimes we don't trust the Spirit enough. And this man had come to faith, and the Spirit said to Philip, okay, leave him. Let him get on with it. And he went back. He had the Scriptures. He'd been baptized. He'd heard about Christ. And he went back. We can assume he continued rejoicing. And Philip just went back to the humdrum, inverted commas, life 
of preaching the gospel. No more Ethiopian eunuchs. No more moments quite like this. This is the one thing everybody will remember him for. And yet he kept going for 25 more years at least. He kept going. My concern is that uh, that should be true for all of us. No, this kind of thing won't happen. Probably. But what can happen is that all of us can ask the Lord today, tomorrow, that uh, I do want to be ready, Lord. I do want to use the opportunity, Lord. May I never lose the vision. And this is my last thought. If this man was living for Christ, Philip was living for Christ, and Philip was able, in the will of the Lord, with the word of the Lord, to do the work of the Lord, it was because he never went stale. If you ever preach for your old vicar, preach that he won't get stale, that he'll keep fresh. Pray for your present vicar and every one of us uh, that we might keep fresh. But just pray for yourself. You see, is it possibly true that Philip could only do it with conviction because he never lost sight of the wonder of it all? The moment I forget that I was a sinner hell-bound until God by His grace brought me to the foot of the cross. If ever I forget that truth and think I'm a vicar or was a vicar, I'm a religious man, then I shall lose any power I may ever have had. And so will you. You see, William Temple, the great archbishop of a bygone age, wrote a commentary on John. And his commentary on John, he has this little line. No Christian can ever say, go to the cross. He can only say, come to the cross. I wish Archbishop spoke as sensibly as that in our day. What a lovely statement that was. Nobody can say, go to the cross. Only come. And it's only when I'm still motivated by that cross that I shall really want to bring people to the foot of it. If I've got into the habit of thinking I'm all right because I'm respectable, then I shall never see the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza. I shall never know the promptings of the Spirit of God. In a few minutes you'll sing this. What shall I give to the man who gave everything, humbling himself before all he had made? Dare I withhold my own life from his sovereignty? I shall give all for the sake of his name. Oh, I will sing of the Lamb. Yes, and I hope speak of the Lamb as well. Let's pray. Lord, in the quietness we recognize much of this story is alien to our world. It's a very different world, and yet the heart of it is still the same. Lord, give us all the passion that Philip had, the desire to reach people for you, whether in big crowds or one by one. Lord, may we never forget how much we owe to you. And as we in a minute, sing of the Lamb. May we, in all our hearts, be ready to offer our lives afresh to the one who gave all for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So